something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On Easter Sunday, 1993, inmates at Lucasville Prison in Ohio took control of an entire cell block. The crisis that became known as the Lucasville Prison Riot lasted 11 days and claimed 10 lives, including one of the prison guards. When the cell block was finally surrendered, an investigation ensued aimed at bringing the riot leadership to justice. After several rounds of interviews, five names emerged, including a man who lived on that cell block named Keith Lamar. Now, according to the state, Keith had allegedly commanded a team of men who murdered four supposed snitches before heading out to the prison yard where the authorities ushered all the inmates into another block that was still under state control. Then, while confined in a cell with nine other men, he allegedly ordered one more death. The other inmates weren't telling this particular story in their initial interviews, but by the time of Keith's capital trial, they were all somehow singing the same tune. And that had to count for something. But this is wrongful conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today's guest is somebody I've been waiting for for a long time. His story, as terrifying as it is, it's also the stuff of legend because this is a man, and Keith, I'm talking about you. I'm talking about you in the third person. I'm going to talk directly to you now. Keith, you have had a life that if somebody wrote it into a movie, nobody would believe it. And this is a guy, now I'm back to talking about the third person, who has performed concerts all over the world, from inside of your cell on death row. It sounds bizarre when I hear you say it, you know, but yeah, it's been it's been a hell of a journey, man, to say the least. And this situation that I'm currently facing has only focused me more on trying to get as much life out of my life as I possibly can. Yeah, I mean, despite fighting for your very life from death row, which is literally hell on earth, Your pursuit of art and life seems to have only gotten stronger. 
And like I just mentioned, you've put on this spoken word and jazz concert series called Freedom First. And if that wasn't enough, you also put out an album by the same name. <laughs> but there's even more. You know, there's books, documentaries, book clubs, and so on and so forth. I just wake up and try to do as much as I can with, with the time that I have, you know, which is what we all should be doing, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't even know a lot of people out here in the free world who are living as much as you are inside the literal living hell of Ohio death row. And we're going to get into all of that in more detail later on. And we're also going to be hearing from one of your attorneys, Keegan Stefan, as well. But now I just want to turn around first and start from the beginning of your life. You were born and grew up in Cleveland, right? Yeah, I was born in 1969 on the east side of Cleveland, Ohio, in a small little enclave called The Village. You know, that old saying, it takes a village. I think for the people who founded this little place, took that seriously. My grandfather, Harry Lamar, bought his own home in this little enclave. It was made up of people who were in one form or another related. And, you know, during dinner time, you can walk into any number of houses and, you know, people will let you sit down and eat dinner with them. There was no distinction about the economic status because everybody was pretty much on the same level. And that's where I really grew up at. From a baby until I was around seven or eight, and my mother met and married a man named Larry Morris. And shortly thereafter, we moved out of the village into the inner city, basically. I mean, the village sounds pretty amazing. It seems like an odd choice to leave. What were the circumstances? Well, my grandmother, she was the matron of our family, pretty much said what went and what didn't go in our family. And my stepfather didn't like that. And so he moved so he can kind of run his own household. But he was a side order chef at a country club working for meager wages. And so that was the first time in my life that I ever remember being hungry. And sometimes, you know, the lights would be off, the gas would be off, and we had to heat the house with, you know, keeping the oven door open and whatnot. And we weren't allowed to tell my grandparents about this. It all kind of happened between 9 and 12 years old. And that is where I kind of marked the change in my life, becoming aware of the poverty. You know, you're, you go to school to learn arithmetic, but your, your peers teach you other things. We couldn't afford polo and guest jeans and all these different things that meant so much to my peers. So I take it you wanted to fit in. What did you do to make that happen or to try to make that happen? I worked, I had two paper routes, cutting grass, shoveling snow, you know, did all those things. You know, a pair of pants might cost $50, $60. And this was before Air Jordan came out, but tennis shoes. It was just out of my range as a kid, trying to do it the legitimate way. And, you know, kids are brutal, man. You know, you show up with some knockoff Jordan's jeans and you may as well came to school butt naked, you know. The ridicule was severe. It's all arbitrary bullshit, but you don't know that when you're a kid. And my brother, when I was 10, who was 12, he was hanging out with older kids. And, you know, he had undergone the same ridicule as I did and had quickly opt to become a thief. Once I just made the decision to become a thief myself, he, you know, kind of showed me how to go about stealing clothes and how to, you know, remove the alarms from the jeans and all this stuff. But then, you know, the reward of coming, walking into the school building with some Jordan's jeans and a polo shirt, the reception that I received from my peers. I mean, all of a sudden, girls who wouldn't speak to me a year ago are putting notes in my locker. I think I got addicted to that. And so that ultimately became my life. And I started hanging with a group of older kids in the neighborhood. 
And these were the guys that your older brother was friends with, right? Yeah, it was a couple of guys, like legends in the neighborhood I lived in. Joe Butler, Joe Bruce, Daryl Daniels. I was 13 by then, and they were like 15, 16 years old. And my older brother Nelson, well, he had already been sent away to juvenile. And so I was pretty much by myself. And I fell in with these guys one day, and we all piled into a stolen car, and we was going to drive out to the adjacent suburb. As soon as we crossed over into Shaker Heights, a police officer got right behind us, and we was in this high-speed chase, like going to 80 miles an hour down a residential district. And I was actually relieved when I got caught, like, thank God, you know, because this was an extreme situation for me in my life. And we went before this judge, and he lined us all up. It was about six of us all together in our families. And he went down the line, and he was giving guys six months for each offense that they had. And he'd say, Joe Bruce, this your third time in front of me, 18 months. Joe Butler, this your second time a year. You know, and he got down to me, he said, hmm, Keith Lamar. I said, what are you doing hanging with these bad boys? Not, you know, try to look weak and, you know, hang my head and hunch my shoulders, you know. And he gave my mother and my parents the option. He said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do, parents. You either take them home and deal with them or I'll deal with them. And, you know, a stepfather told him, you, you deal with them. And 15 minutes later, I was sitting in a, in a jail cell. So given the choice, your stepfather effectively threw you away. Yeah, because to him, my brother and I, we were just two extra mouths to feed. And your mother didn't have anything to say about that? You know, ideally, that's what you would have hoped for somebody to intervene. But she she had already been broken to the point where she accepted somebody like this as her husband. You know, any man is better than no man. And as it turns out, he was he was like a monster. He was, you know, a very abusive guy. So now you're going from the boiling pot into the sizzling frying pan, so to speak. How long was your stint in juvie? Six months, but I was 13, so it felt like six years, believe it or not, compared to the situation I was in, it wasn't so bad. I had three square meals a day. I was in a structured environment. I came out of it, I was on the honor roll in terms of my academic portion of my life. And who knows, maybe you could have kept going in that direction had you returned to a more stable you know, home and life. When I, when I came home, I came home. My parents had moved into a two-bedroom apartment as if my brother and I had went off to the Army or something, that we weren't coming back home. And so we moved up into this uninsulated attic, was freezing cold in the winter, scorching hot in the summer. And we were pretty much put on notice that we were on our own beyond our, our, our bare necessities that we would not be provided for. And I was 13 still when I came home. I think I'm going to have to start selling marijuana weed. I bought two ounces of marijuana, and I, I didn't look back, man. That was the beginning of, of the end for me, yeah. But what about your brother? My brother had found a means of escape. He met this girl named Paula who lives in the suburbs, and her, her mother took a liking to my brother and allowed him to move in with them, and he was going to school in the suburbs. So it was me basically by myself now. I'm 14 years old. I'm selling marijuana. I'm so serious about it, too, because I figured this is my only way out. And I became very good at that. I had about five or six guys working for me and everything. Young guys, 14, 13 years old, selling marijuana on street corners and whatnot. And I came home one day and, and discovered that my stepfather had been up in my room and had found one of my stashes of money. I bought me a safe, and not long after that, my stepfather kicked me out. I was 15 years old. 
and I moved into the projects. This was an apartment where we were selling drugs out of there, and this was around 85, 86, right around the time crack cocaine started trickling into the ghetto. Nobody really knew what it was, how dangerous it was. So at the time, it just seemed like an easy way to make money. The profit margins are better than they are with weed, right? Yes, that's right. But the danger increases too. And at first, everything was copacetic. I was snorting cocaine. By the time I was 16, I had a Mercedes Benz, Cadillac, driving Porsches, BMWs, Rolex watches. But around a year or two, about 1988, was like the height of the epidemic. And all the detrimental effects of crack cocaine really started to become clear. The communities were being decimated by this drug, and guys I grew up with were becoming dope fiends, and young women were selling their bodies, and it was just a real horrifying period to live through. As the crack epidemic wore on, the community became increasingly desperate, affecting even Keith's childhood friend, Kenyatta Collins. You know, he and I grew up together. We used to walk to school together, play basketball together. By the time 1988 rolled around, he was, you know, hooked on crack cocaine pretty significantly and had fell in with a group of guys called Stick Up Kids. You know, they used to go around robbing drug dealers. So I became one of the targets. And on December 2nd, 1988, Keith was at the apartment that served as the base of his drug operation when Kenyatta and the Stick Up Kids showed up. And I'm back in the back bedrooms, counting money, and I hear a commotion in the front. I come to the front of the door, and guys were forcing their way into the apartment. You know, I had the gun in my hand. I was shot twice myself in, in, in the legs. You know, I shot a Kenyatta twice, and he came through the door. I woke up in the hospital, and I was right next to Kenyatta Collins. I heard the doctors, when they pronounced him dead, say, no, he, he's not going to he, he's not gonna make it. And, you know, I woke up again and I was chained to a hospital bed, you know. And so it was gradually that it began to dawn on me, the magnitude or enormity of what had occurred. And once I was able to walk again, I went to the county jail and I bonded out, got an attorney. I mean, this is not a legal opinion, but your actions in this incident sure sound like self-defense in the purest sense of the word. Access to the old self-defense laws because I was selling drugs. My hands weren't clean. Right. So, what was your attorney's plan? This attorney was a friend of a family, and I gave him like ten thousand in cash. I gave him a Mercedes Benz and a 1983 Chevy Cavalier. So I gave him two cars and cash to represent me, and he came to me on the evil trial with this scare tactic and told me, you know, that they were going to try to put me on death row. I was 18, 19 years old at the time. And since I was so ignorant of the law, I didn't know how to hold them to account. And I pled guilty. You know, he, he convinced me that that was in my benefit to do that. And I didn't find out until later on that he himself was strung out on cocaine at the time. It's not ironic enough that you ended up giving the proceeds of your successful drug operation to an attorney who was one of the consumers of those same drugs, who then ended up selling you more or less down the river. You know, the thing that I didn't know, that I know now, that they elevate the crime in order to entice you into taking the deal. I pled guilty to murder. It really should have been manslaughter. You know, I was in a state of defending myself. No forethought or malice or anything went into it, so it was manslaughter. 
I copped out to murder. They gave me 18 years of life. And, and I remember the judge saying, you know, um, don't worry about it, son. It's, it's only 12 years, six months to the parole board. You know, and I was 19 at the time. But of course, he didn't tell me about the danger I was wading into. This podcast is brought to you by Ohio Justice and Policy Center, a nonprofit law firm that seeks justice for people directly impacted by Ohio's criminal legal system. OJPC provides free legal services to currently and formerly incarcerated people. Through its Beyond Guilt project, OJPC works to free overpunished people who have rehabilitated themselves. OJPC's second chance clinics help individuals with criminal records remove barriers to employment and housing. OJPC's Human Rights in Prison Project represents people who face denial of medical care. In its 25-year history, OJPC has worked at the policy level and won numerous victories in Ohio, including ending juvenile life without parole and exempting seriously mentally ill people from the death penalty. To learn more about Ohio Justice and Policy Center and how you can support its mission, visit ohiojpc.org. That's O-H-I-O-J-P-C.org. Ohio Justice and Policy Center. We don't write people off. They sent me to Lebanon, Lebanon, Ohio. It's the first and real encounter with racism that I had. You know, the N-word, you heard it constantly ringing around the clock. N-word, there's N-word, I'm talking about by the staff, not just by the prisoners. And it was predominantly white guards and predominantly white prisoners down in this place. You know, black people from the inner city were the minority. And everybody was hopped up on these weights. Guys were taking steroids. And after hearing all these war stories of young guys like me being raped, you know, I kind of fixed my mind that that wouldn't happen to me. I didn't know how I would prevent that from happening to me. Yeah, I understand that it's not uncommon for people to join a prison gang for protection. Yeah, it was three gangs, the Black Ace Disciples, the Sunday Muslims, although they don't consider themselves a gang, and the Aaron Brotherhoods, three major factions that kind of controlled the resources, the meager resources inside the prison. Since we were down in southern Ohio, the Aaron Brotherhood were being armed by the, the guards who worked there, some of whom were in the Aaron Brotherhood. They had swastikas on their necks and all of this. The Aaron Brotherhood, they had real knives. Not the makeshift knives, the, the shanks that you see on television, all kinds of things that were being brought in by the guards. But you didn't join the Sunni Muslims or the Black Gangster Disciples, right? Oh, you, you presume I wasn't in the Aryan Brotherhood. Oh, my God, that. how rude of me not to have thought of that. Right, I mean, right, right. I'm sure their invite got lost somehow. No, though, in the no, prison no, I never got an invite. But the first thing I did when I came to Lebanon, I joined the boxing team. That was, you know, one of the best things I could have done. You know, once, twice a year, you have a boxing match in front of the whole prison. You can show everybody what you made of, and people can form their opinion after that as to whether or not you are easy game or whatever, you know. But I got my GED and then enrolled into the college program. So I was on the trajectory in terms of preparing myself for this, this parole date. And staying out of a prison gang was part of that plan, which continued after Keith was transferred from Lebanon to Lucasville in 1991, which was arguably a more difficult and violent situation because of a 
truly tragic incident involving an adult education teacher who worked at the prison. Beverly Taylor was her name, and she was murdered by a black prisoner. In 1990, calls for the guy to be executed were being put forth by the community. But the guy was mentally handicapped and was deemed uneligible for the death penalty. So they didn't get what they wanted. And so ultimately, a new warden was appointed, a guy named Arthur Tate. I think around 1991. And so Arthur Tate instituted this thing called Operation Shakedown. And he started kind of turning the screws, tightening up on everything. You know, you have to have your shirt tucked in at all times. You got to walk on the right side of the hallway. It was more or less like a military camp now. You know, something that happened overnight. He set up this P.O. box. If you wanted to drop the dime on somebody who wanted to become a snitch, you just put an anonymous note in the mailbox on your way to chow, and he would act on it. So it was a very contentious environment, all the various factions were being pitted against each other. And you can kind of cut the tension with a knife. And there was one incident in particular that kind of pushed the whole thing over the edge. They came out with this tuberculosis test and apparently had an alcoholic substance called phenol that the Muslims strenuously objected to. And the warden, Tate, gave them ultimatum. You either take the test or we're going to make you take it. You know, they took advantage of the two days that they had been given to formulate this plan. You know, April 11th, they carried it out. So April 11th, 1993 was Easter Sunday, and Warden Tate planned on forcibly injecting the Sunni Muslim population on Monday, April 12th. So the Sunnis devised a plan to seize control of an entire cell block by taking advantage of the skeleton crew that worked on the holidays when the staff of prison guards would go from around 130 strong down to only 80. Now, to give you a lay of the land, Lucasville Prison sprawled out in four directions, like a wheel with four spokes. One spoke encompassed maintenance, the hospital, and dining hall. Walking from there toward the center, you'd meet up with the other three spokes, J block to the right, K to the left, and L block straight ahead. Now, K and L both consisted of a long hallway with a gym at the end and eight wings to the sides, L1, L2, and so on. Keith lived in L6. It was about 3 p.m. when Keith and the other prisoners were in the yard between K and L block when the Sunni Muslims saw their chance and struck. Recreation was just about to end. They called over the intercom, 10-minute warning, where everybody started lining up to come back inside the prison. And while we were standing in line, a guard ran out with blood streaming down his face. And he was followed by a masked inmate carrying a knife stick and saying, we're taking over, we're taking over. You know, i never forget it, man. It was surreal because you immediately know, oh, shit, this is serious. You know, whoever this person is with this mask, they're going to kill him because you can't see inside and you don't know that it's the whole Sunni Muslim organization. I didn't know that standing on the sidewalk. And it was just around 30 minutes or so, they took over the whole L side of the prison. And they later barricaded themselves into L Block and held it for 11 days. But at this point, Keith was still out on the yard and had no idea what was going on or what was to come. News started to trickle out that they were, you know, ransacking the cells and everything. What was actually happening, they was going from cell to cell, accumulating food, telling people that they had to donate whatever food stuff that they had so they can administer it during the ensuing days. But the word that reached us on the yard was that they was robbing the cells. 
And so I wanted to go in and secure my property, but I didn't know it was a life or death situation. I thought it was just a situation where some guys got a hold of some keys and non-sales were being rummaged through. And so it was with that misinformation that I, against my better judgment, decided to go inside and check on my personal belongings. And this decision to go inside L Block was how eventually Keith's name got dragged into what happened on L6. When I went in, I kind of immediately understood that, you know, this was uh, something more involved than just one prisoner attacking a guard because they were breaking windows, fire alarms was going off. I mean, it was pandemonium. And, you know, I made my way to my assigned cell block, L6. And in contrast to the chaos that was going on in the corridors, it was very, very quiet. You know, guards were already locked into the shower stalls, and there was different prisoners inside of the cells who I later learned were hostages. But I didn't know that at the time. I came in and not really understand. I ran down to my cell, and there was a person inside of my cell. And so instinctively, I ran up to the control panel trying to unlock my door so I can get this person out of my cell. Because as far as I'm concerned, that confirmed what I already kind of figured that somebody was rifling through my things. But, it, you know, he was a hostage. I went up to the control panel, was turning the knobs randomly, you know, not really understanding how to work the panel and opened up a few other doors inadvertently. And, you know, that alerted the Sunni Muslims who were inside the pod and they accosted me, told me, you know, on certain terms that, you know, this is what's going on. You either will us or you get the fuck out of here. And, you know, I, I chose to leave. I, I left and came back onto the yard. Keith was ultimately accused of killing four men during his short trip inside L Block, the hostages being held on L6, who, according to the state, were snitches. At this point, I want to bring in one of the attorneys representing Keith. He's an associate at Bell, Doc, Levine, and Hoffman. Keegan Stefan, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, Keegan, the state's narrative of what happened on that awful Easter Sunday in 1993 obviously diverges from Keith's version of events. But let's start with where they are the same. You know, Keith was not in L6 when the riot started, even by the state's theory and narrative of events. Second, you know, this riot was very deliberately planned by a group of people that Keith was not a part of. And again, the state concedes that, which seems like a very important point. Right. But now the state disagrees with what we've already heard from Keith. Yeah, so that's where their stories diverge. Keith goes in to get his belongings and leaves. That is what numerous alibi witnesses say. The state says that he goes in and then forms a death squad and executes the the people that have been locked in their cells. And this death squad was allegedly made up of Keith and four or five others who brutally murdered four alleged snitches that were being held hostage on L6. Daryl DePina, Albert Steano, William Svetti, and Bruce Vitale. But what did they say was Keith's motivation for this? The state says that it's effectively a bargaining chip, that if he forms this death squad and executes these alleged snitches, then he can get out of L6. He can leave. You know, people who staged the uprising have said that Keith would not have had that power, that they wouldn't have let that happen, that this wouldn't have been a bargaining chip to let people leave. So it's inconsistent with what was going on in the prison, and it's inconsistent with what Keith was doing. It's inconsistent with numerous alibi witnesses. It's only consistent with the stories of the people who testified against Keith, who were obviously highly motivated to testify in that manner. And later on, we'll get into the testimonies of those receiving either leniency, shorter sentences, immunity, a transfer, or most of the above. But first, let's get back to the story from Keith's perspective from when he returned to the yard 
and the prison was in full crisis and chaos mode. I mean, helicopters were flying up above over the prison. And then gradually the National Guard showed up, the Ohio State Patrol showed up, and they took up stands around the, outside the perimeter fence. They had they, you know, machine guns out and riot gear, they riot helmets and everything. And so we're thinking this is only a matter of time before they regain order. And an hour would go by, two hours would go by, and then the body started coming out. You know, a group of mass inmates would come out of the building, waving what looked like to be a, a machete. And it was surreal. And they had that body on the yard 10, 15 minutes ago by, and someone from the administration, a medic or whatever, come and retrieve the body and take it back through the K-side area. 30 minutes ago by, another body. Then another body. Another body. Then it started getting dark outside, started getting cold. And eventually, guys started setting bonfires, you know, out from the wood, from the boxing ring. And you gotta understand, you know, the boxing ring was my sanctuary. This was the place where I went to to kind of, you know, make peace with all the bullshit that I've been through in my life. You know, I'm tearing the boxing ring up, trying to get wood so I can start a fire because it's chilly. It's April, but it's chilly at nighttime. So we're standing around the fires and everything. No, while this is happening, the Highway Patrol, the National Guard, just standing there watching. By now, I don't know, five or six bodies have been brought out to the yard, most of them dead. The people whose job it is to stop me from being one of those dead bodies are standing on the outside of the fence. And it's inevitable that you take in the notion that shit, one of these bodies could be mine. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. 
Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Around three o'clock in the morning, a highway state patrol came out, guns drawn, and ordered all of us to line up to enter the case gymnasium. Once we got inside of there, they stripped all of us naked, took all our clothes, and made us sit down in the middle of the gymnasium floor. Probably about 400 people or so. And we stayed there like that in total stark nakedness for hours, it seemed like. Eventually, they started taking us random groups of 10 and escorting us to these single-man cells. So they put 10 naked individuals in these cells the size of a closet. If my recollection is right, I'm in K236 with nine other naked individuals. And in that cell, the fifth murder happened. And the state says that Keats ordered the murder. You know, Keats says that there was a confrontation and that he had nothing to do with it. When they finally came around and gave us jumpsuits, not long after that, threw sandwiches in the cell, which was the first time many of us had eaten since the whole ordeal started. It was like a feeding frenzy. Some guys took more than their share. And Dennis Weaver, he was one of the older prisoners in the cell. And he you know, held on to his dignity, to his credit, and refused to kind of join the fray. He made the mistake of saying something about it to this guy, William Bowling, guy named Shabazz. And Shabazz and Dennis got into an altercation. Shabazz put him in a chokehold, and these two other prisoners held his feet down, you know, because he was struggling, trying to free himself. And when the authorities came to remove Dennis from the cell and tried to question us, I, along with most of the guys in the cell, said that we were asleep, which was our way of saying that we didn't want to be involved because that's one of the things you learn in prison, to avoid violence by minding your own business. And we don't know at the time that by not saying anything, we allowed the guy who actually committed the murder to shift the blame. You know, he said he was forced to kill Dennis by me and several other individuals. You know, it's a pretty wild leap to go from someone not telling you the complete truth, from someone saying that they were asleep to saying that they ordered a murder. It's also obviously hard or impossible to order a murder when you don't have a weapon or the cloud of a prison gang behind you. But that's what the state and its cooperators ended up saying Keith did once the riot dust settled and many rounds of interviews began. But that didn't start until Wednesday, April 21st, and Dennis Weaver's body had only joined the others from L Block on the second day of the Lucasville riot, April 12th, 1993. At this point, the instigators of the riot were barricaded into L Block, armed with the prison's hostage negotiation handbook and eight hostages, making demands while anticipating the authorities' moves. 
On Wednesday, April 14th, a sheet was hung from a window threatening the death of a hostage if their demands were not met. Among those demands were food, water, electricity, access to the news media, a stipulation regarding any future medical testing, the hiring of more black guards, the relaxation of day-to-day restrictions, and various quality of life improvements, as well as the removal of Arthur Tate. Now, early Thursday morning, April 15th, the body of one of the hostages, 40-year-old prison guard Robert Vallandingham, was produced from L Block. He had been strangled to death. The negotiations continued. A few hostages were released. And finally, on Wednesday, April 21st, a list of 21 demands were met to solidify the surrender of L Block. These included that news media and religious leaders would witness the surrender, that there would be no retaliation on any inmate or group of inmates, and that discipline or criminal proceedings would be carried out fairly and impartially. In the end, 10 men had died. Earl Elder, Franklin Farrell, Bruce Harris, David Summers, Daryl DePina, Bruce Vitale, Albert Stayano, William Svetti, Dennis Weaver, and of course, the prison guard, Robert Vallandigham. And so the guards murder is what really drove the prosecution. The riot was presided over ultimately by the black gangster disciples, the Sunni Muslims, and the Aryan Brotherhood, right? The goal was to put their leadership on death row. Well, the Aaron Brother here is represented on death row. The Sunni Muslims are represented here on death row. The only people who are not represented here on death row is the black gangster disciples. Guess where they're at? They're right now walking the street because they testified against the leadership of these other gangs. And I'm the fill-in for the black gangster disciples. Never been in a gang, but I had a prior record for murder. I was inside of the L6 pod. When I came in for that brief time, I wasn't wearing a mask. People identified me, said Keith Lamar was inside the pod. They pulled my record. And recently, when we did a four-year request, we found out that the, the prosecutor had written his name on my file. Like, this is significant. This is somebody we can use. I was dropped out of school in 10th grade, shoplifting when I was 13, 14 years old, selling weed. And these are the things that the state tried to use as leverage to get me to cop out the crimes I didn't commit. But the state had to come up with witnesses to corroborate this narrative. It's remarkable the number of interviews that took place and the number of times the same incarcerated people were interviewed and how much their stories changed. Most of them did not identify Keith in their early interviews and even affirmatively said that Keith was not involved. And then at a certain point in that arc of giving statements, they all started identifying Keith. Something shifted there and he became a very easy scapegoat. He was already facing a sentence that maxed out at life. Everybody sort of thought he would take the plea. But as everyone who's talked to Keith knows, he's a remarkable individual with the utmost principles and he was not going to plead guilty to a bunch of murders he did not commit. You know, one of the things that you don't see on Law and Order and those different police shows on television is that, you know, it's real informal environment. They call you by your first name and, you know, act like your old buddies, like, Keith, come on, we we passed that. We're going to need you to cop out to this and, and you'll be doing yourself a favor. Otherwise, we're going to put your black ass on death row. Cop out the murder and we'll run the time concurrent with the time you're already doing to be like you're getting off scot-free. I said, but I'm innocent, though. How am I getting off scot-free when you're talking about prolonging my stay in prison beyond my parole day, and I haven't done anything? You've just heard about how a riot and a rush to feed a community's sense of vengeance put Keith Lamar in a position where his past was leveraged against him 
in service of those who chose to escape their crimes by cooperating with the state. Listen to part two, where we'll explore who those individuals were, what they stood to gain by sending Keith to death row, and the sham trial that put him there, as well as where we're at in his fight for justice and his very life. Find and listen to the second half of this very important episode, available now if you're an Apple Plus subscriber, or you can listen next week in the free feed. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. You can listen to this and all the Lava for Good podcasts one week early by subscribing to Lava for Good Plus on Apple Podcasts. I want to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Andy Chelsea, and Lila Robinson, as well as my fellow executive producers, Jeff Kempler, Kevin Wardis, and Jeff Clyburn. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us across all social media platforms at Lava for Good and at Wrongful Conviction. You can also follow me on Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.